Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we've covered the topic of pain before on this podcast. We've talked about the future of pain, pain management. We've dipped our toes in the whole discussion of where does pain come from, why does it exist, how does it factor into our experience of reality. Mm-hmm. In this episode, we really want to get into the question, why do we seek out pain? I mean, we've all seen images. We've all seen footage of, of various uh, ritualistic uh, pain exercises going on around the globe. And a lot of us have probably asked, well, why, why would they do that? Why are they doing that? Why is that person sticking that sharp thing through their body right now completely of their own free will? Why, why are they engaging in self-harm? What are they getting out of it? And uh, it's a fascinating question when you start breaking it apart, when you start when you start looking at the studies that have examined the benefits of pain, that the weird crossover between pleasure and pain. Um, and so that is what we're attempting to tackle in this episode. Yeah, and I wanted to mention real quick, we are just exploring this topic. We right. are, of course, not advocating that anyone undergo feats of, of pain so that they can achieve some sort of transcendence. This is just kind of looking at pain and pleasure and the social aspects of why people would engage in pain, uh, what sort of benefits, why would they do it? It's an exploration of these different questions. Um, and the best way to get at it is to really look at some of the more historical rituals of pain. I'd say for me, one of the earliest um, examples I became aware of was Christian flagellation. Uh, and this was probably from like seeing the movie The Name of the Rose mm-hmm. at a real early age. And there's a scene in there where the... Uh, a monk is punishing himself by by uh, striking his back with mm-hmm. lashes, and uh, you know, and, and at the time I was too young to really understand all that was going on in that scenario. Yeah. But it but it had an impact on me. Here's somebody that is has devoted their life to God, and they are inflicting pain upon themselves. Well, and of course, to tie that even more, I grew up in in, a, in the Christian church, mm-hmm. and so I always was confronted to the point of almost not seeing it. This image of someone suffering on a cross. Uh, but but more on that later. Yeah, and my first, I guess you would say, introduction to mortification of the flesh uh, for spiritual reasons was the hair shirt, oh. which is you know a, sort of a signature of some early Christian sects who are doing penance for what they perceived as a sin. And the idea is that you have this uh, shirt that looks maybe great on the outside, but on the inside it's lined <laughs> with coarse goat's hair. And it's meant to be this fleshly reminder of your transgression. And some people even would weave um, twigs or thin wires. Mm. And so this idea that this constant irritation is a reminder that you you are not only expressing your faith in the transgression that, that occurred, but also you're trying to train your soul into the right direction with this fleshly reminder. There's a great uh, parody of uh, of this kind of a thing in, of course, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where you see the monks uh, in, in a line filing through the village, and then they're they're chanting something in Latin, and then smacking themselves in the face with a board. Uh, and but they're they're playing on the tradition of the flagellants who, uh, in the 14th century, uh, you know, amid this atmosphere of fear and uncertainty. I mean, you had war raging, you had black death creeping from door to door, and all the while, supposedly God's watching on high, rather unmoved by all of this. So. You end up speaking the language of pain. I mean, that's that's what this is all about. It's uh, it's about 
seeking penance for the sin of the world, seeking mm-hmm. penance through through physical punishment of the self. And so they're walking around, they're punishing themselves and trying to sort of take the sins of the world upon them, saying, look, if essentially laying out the argument, all right, God, if I beat myself enough times, will you maybe just lighten the load on all of us? Yeah, and there's a kind of obedience factor at play there, yeah. as well as this sort of like self-rigor. Yeah, and of course, all of this is taking place within a faith that has at its center a man suffering and dying on an instrument of torture. So the the story of pain, the story of suffering permeates the, the entire worldview. Now, you can also look at Islam for another example of mortification of the flesh. Yes, the uh, Islamic day of Ashura. This is a time when some Shia Muslims practice self-flagellation on the day to uh, commemorate the suffering of Imam Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, the suffering and death of uh, the of uh, Imam Hussein. Um and and so, you know, this is another example of of uh, of them engaging, reenacting, feeling the pain of, uh, of of an existing story within their faith. Yeah, and what I think is interesting about that is that it's, it's this metaphorical thing. At the mm-hmm. same time, they are bringing the physical body into it, but transcendence is certainly at play here, mm-hmm. and devotion is at play. And then you have various fire-walking rituals around the world. Indeed, uh, there are a number of examples that we mentioned in our episode on fire-walking. So if you want a deeper dive into the science of fire-walking, the tri- trickery of fire-walking, uh, that's definitely a podcast you should listen to. But, uh, again, this, this takes place around the world, everywhere from, uh, from corporate retreats to uh, the uh, Christian firewalking work- tradition in northern Greece, the festival of Anastanaria. This is when uh, uh, it's all about the idea that St. Constantine protects them from being burned because they have this faith in them and devotion uh, to him. Uh, but it's, it's essentially walking across hot coals. Yeah, and if you can do it without, uh, you know, crying out or without pain, then surely you must be the most devoted. But when, in fact, we know that we have really thick soles on our feet and they insulate yeah. us from from heat pretty well. But, you know, it's it, again, it gets complicated in all of these rituals because there's obviously there are going to be varying degrees of actual pain, but an actual physical pain. But layered on, upon all of that is the storytelling and the experience and and some of the scientific principles that we're going to discuss uh, later on. Now. The next is this next example is from a vegetarian festival in Thailand, which, which sounds I think nice. Just doesn't it sound it lovely? Like I bet that there there's all sorts of like wonderful artisanal cheeses you can get, and um, but the Thai are known for their artisanal cheeses. Yeah, and lots of tie dye, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. But no, it does sound great because you're thinking, oh, vegetarian Thai. I love vegetarian Thai. This I'm sounds, going to I'm that. Bringing the kids. Uh, it's. A little more complicated than that, however. Um, the uh, the Phuket uh, Vegetarian Festival is, is certainly colorful. It's uh, held over a nine-day period in October, and it celebrates the Chinese community's belief uh, that abstinence from meat and various stimulants during the ninth lunar month of the Chinese calendar will help them obtain good health and peace of mind. And amid this, we mm-hmm. you see firewalking, you see body piercing, and other acts of self-mortification they're all about uh, the participants acting as uh, ultimately as, as mediums for the gods. Yeah, they, they remove parts of their skin, perform bloodletting, mm-hmm. impale their cheeks and limbs with anything from knives and skewers to antlers and umbrellas. And didn't you say that you even saw a lamp? Yes, I think I saw a lamp in, in one image. But 
that it, it's interesting that this is a, a festival where you see b- the bodily mortification as well as simply uh, altering your diet. Again, showing that there's a there's a broad spectrum uh, that entails self punishment and just self denial. That they're all ultimately kind of shades of the the same thing. And again, wrapped within ritual, wrapped within worldview and belief. Uh, and I know you want to get hit that big theme, but I'm gonna have to go back to something pretty pedestrian. Okay. The crowd gets in by throwing firecrackers at at the uh, the people who are doing these acts of <laughs> <laughs> mortification of the flesh. I'm just, just saying. Just to add a little little extra. A and, little a little Vegas. Yeah, and it's it is important. This will come up uh, as we get into some of the studies, but not only are the people suffering and or at least engaging in physical pain mm-hmm. in these uh, rituals important, but the people beholding it are important. And we'll talk about yeah. the, the social construct behind this because it's pretty fascinating. Another festival that you might want to attend is the Hindu Thaipusam Festival. Yes, this is a uh, festival celebrated mostly by the Tamil community on the full moon of the Tamil month of Thai. That's January, February. And the festival commemorates the occasion when, when Pavarti gave Murugan a special spear to defeat the demon Sporadaman. So on, the, on this day of the festival, devotees will shave their heads and they'll undertake a pilgrimage on a set uh, road while engaging in various acts of devotion. Notably, they're carrying out different types of burdens or kavadi. Uh, and uh, in its simplest form, this can entail simply carrying a pot of milk, uh, but it also can involve uh, mortification of the flesh. Piercing of the skin, tongue, or cheeks uh, with skewers uh, is, is one of the, the, the examples that you'll generally see in uh, in any photos of, of this event, certainly the photos that tend to, you know, uh, make their way around the Internet. And again, people end up looking at these and they're saying, who are these people? Why are they doing this thing that they do? Uh, and as we're unrolling, we see examples of this in ver- in all sorts of worldviews, all sorts of religious rituals around the world. Yeah. And uh, lest you judge too quickly, again, hang on, because we're going to talk about some other modern day things that we do that mm-hmm. are on par with this. Um, but one of the things that's brought up in this festival is that sometimes pierced worshipers are sometimes attached to ropes um, with the hooks that are in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And then they're pulled by other devotees and they are suspended in the air from their flesh. Ah, suspension. Yes. Which figures pretty prominently in the Okipaw hook suspension ceremony. This is a Native American um, ritual. Yeah, and this would generally take place in, in a big enclosed tent. An individual would have been uh, uh, would have multiple hooks put into their skin mm-hmm. because you can't just have one because it just gets, it's kind of the bed of nails scenario, right? Yeah, a bed of one nail means you're going to have a nail sticking in your back. A bed of multiple nails means that your 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 weight is distributed evenly. Yeah, it's like an engineering solution, basically. Yeah. Of course, that's not to, not to say that there's a there's a lack of pain in the hook suspension ceremony. You have physical pain. You have this lifting off the ground, this mm-hmm. almost ascension motif taking place. And uh, then the, and the individual uh, is in the, the throes of this sensation. Um, a number of people out there are probably familiar with this or probably having some sort of you know flag go off in their head because uh, Richard Harris uh, engaged in this in the film um, A Man Called Horse, which is an old Western. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember... Catching part of it or seeing an ad for it on TBS when I was a kid. And I remember looking at it and thinking, Oh, that's horrible. What the, what, the, what these people ended up doing to this Richard Harris character in this film. I don't want to see that uh, at the time, not realizing, not, not knowing that this was actually, a, you know, a voluntary ritual 
that again, pain and pleasure are far more complex than we give them uh, give them credit. Yeah, the Mandan tribe is one of the tribes known um, to practice this, and they would suspend young warriors in an annual rite of passage ceremony that was celebrating the creation of the earth. Now, another example that comes to mind, uh, and this is uh, one that relates back to Christianity. Uh, in the Philippines, you see Catholics in the Philippines every year uh, engaging in reenactments of the passion of the Christ. Uh, so we're talking actual self-crucifixion. Well, I say self-crucifixion, but to engage in crucifixion, you generally need a little help. It's kind of a hard thing to do. To do by yourself. Yeah, one-handed. Uh, but uh, and in this, we're seeing them actually physically, with pain, reenact the pivotal scene of torture and death uh, at the center of of the Christian faith. And, uh, you know, we're not talking hundreds of people. Sometimes I've, I've seen uh, accounts where you're generally looking at maybe a dozen, two dozen um, Filipinos engaging in this uh, particular uh, uh, practice. But uh, but then people are watching, and by watching you're also taking part in the ritual. Well, and this isn't too far away from from some of the, uh, the feats of physical strength or endurance that someone in the Jim Rose circus might undergo. Indeed. Uh, you see people lining up to see physical spectacles, spectacles of, that, that seem to have suffering involved in them all the time. And just within the the, uh, the whole world of the, the Passion of the Christ, you see plenty of reenactments of that uh, throughout the Christian world that don't entail actual physical suffering, but mm-hmm. they are a reenactment of this event. And really, I mean, when you when you get down to it, just a reenactment of it without the pain, just a physical image of it uh, is on some level pretty intense, kind of disturbing. I mean, again, you see it enough times you tend to not see it anymore, but there it is. Indeed. Now, if you end up listening to this podcast on the website, I'll make sure that I have a gallery that goes up that includes some images from some of these festivals and a few that we didn't mention. Uh, because, again, there are various uh, rituals, various rites that take place around the world that involve physical pain. But. That does not mean that the religious world uh, um, has a monopoly on this sort of thing. You see an entire secular tradition of self-inflicted or at least voluntary uh, um, receiving of pain in the BDSM community. Or giving of pain, which also... Yes, yes, the giving is, and the receiving. Is yeah. very much but involved you, but, in that. But it's important to note that we're within the BDSM, BDSM scene, we're talking about uh, a consensual uh, arrangement. And within BDSM also you see an entire spectrum. You see, you see just, you know, individuals lightly spanking one another. You also see individuals engaging in suspension, uh, body modification, et cetera. And then also sometimes, uh, suspension, uh, is, uh, winds up as part of art, part of performance art. In our performance art, uh, episode, we mentioned, uh, the performer, uh, Stilark. And, uh, of course he's engaged in various, um, thought provoking, but at times disturbing, um, uh, performances uh, that involve bodily modification on some level or another, and he's engaged in uh, uh, in, in suspension uh, rituals, if you will, uh, several times in the past. Yeah, and within BDSM, it's not always about sex, as we'll talk about later. There's mm-hmm. there's a um, sort of a transcendent component to this. Yeah. Now, to talk about probably the most consensual relationship you could have, um, one would be your morning workout in yourself. That's right. right. Because, Presumably that's consensual. Because what's the big saying, right? Feel the burn, right? Yeah. I mean, it's we we have we it, whether where you're going out in the morning and doing your morning run, 
if you're fitting in, you know, time at the yoga studio, if you're, you know, furiously doing push-ups or pull-ups uh, in the afternoon, there's always this, you're pushing yourself, and you're often pushing yourself into an area that is on some level uncomfortable, but then also rewarding, uh, also at the time even kind of uh, physically rewarding as opposed to just after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if nothing else, think to your own uh, exercise routine. Uh, when we're discussing all of this, because because you see shadows of a lot of it just in that. Yeah, I mean, pushing the envelope of of your abilities does put you sometimes into that pain area, but there's a certain kind of pleasure in that. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about the crossover with pain and pleasure. All right, we're back. Uh, we're discussing pain, the zen of pain. Uh, we've already laid out uh, a number of examples. Uh, some of which are, are, are probably exotic to you, and then some of which are right down home and uh, in your living room. And in all this, I also keep thinking of, um, what's that awful song that had that line, uh, Hurt So Good, Make It Hurt So Good? John Cougar Mellencamp. Hurt So Good, come on, baby, make it hurt so good. That was the share exactly. version. The oh, share. Yeah, the share version is the one I'm thinking yeah. of. But that's that lyric is great because at first it seems uh, paradoxical, right? Mm-hmm. Hurt so good. How can it hurt so good? Mm-hmm. Hurt is bad. It's kind of like that line in Roadhouse uh, where Patrick Swayze says, pain don't hurt. How could pain not hurt? Pain hurt. Pain is hurt. Pain. This is what it's doing. What are you talking about, Swayze? But. Wow. Like, <laughs> a Roadhouse reference. Yeah. Roadhouse is a is in its way a great film. I've, I've, I've seen it multiple times. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because they're not only bouncers, they're bouncer philosophers. Well, and that's kind of a good example of how your amygdala is also doing double duty. Right. It's a bouncer of your emotions <laughs> and a philosopher of your emotions. Because the thing that we know is that the amygdala processes both pain physically and emotionally. It also processes other emotions like pleasure and fear and joy. So it would make sense that the perception of pain, whether it's from like social rejection or whether it's from an injury to your flesh, would be bound up in one another, not to mention the other things that we feel in life. Indeed. Back in 2002, as an example of this, Harvard researchers uh, conducted an experiment where they heated the hands of eight volunteers to the point of pain while they underwent brain scans. And the scan showed activity not only in brain regions typically associated with pain, but also in those devoted to enjoying pleasurable things like food, drugs, and sex. Mm-hmm. So there we see that crossover. And this leads us next to a substance we're always talking about when it comes to uh, human behavior and human desires and our reward system. And that is, of course, dopamine. Yeah, because what we have is we've got this thing called a nucleus accumbens, and it's a neural network in the middle of the brain. It's the engine of the reward Response, which deals a lot in dopamine. And in a 1999 study led by John Levine at the University of San Francisco, it was determined that the reward pathway activates pain relief through the release of both opioids, which is a morphine-like drug produced by the body, and dopamine, which is that chemical messenger whose effects can be mimicked by amphetamine and cocaine. That's why uh, it's so hard to beat addiction. So the findings overturned this long-held assumption that the release of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens is associated only with positive experiences. Here we see examples of it being released in a pain context. Now, bear in mind that we're talking about rituals in a lot of these cases as well. And rituals in and of themselves can be arousing. And as rituals become more arousing, 
They can trigger hormones and stimulate the reward system of the brain. Uh, this, according to anthropologist Dimitri Zygalatis, can cause sensations such as pain and fear to transform into pleasurable experiences through a spike in the neurotransmitter dopamine uh, and an increase in neuropeptides called endorphins, which bind to the brain's opiate receptors and produce the same soothing euphoria felt by uh, a marathon runner. Uh, again, we come back to exercise. We come around to the runner's high. Yeah, that's a good way to contextualize this. Like, yeah. Why would dopamine be released when I'm experiencing pain, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because it because these sort of things are crossed over in one another in the brain and because it, this is very much learned behavior. It doesn't matter what the thing is that makes the dopamine happen. You're going to go to the thing right. if it becomes routinized enough. It exactly. could be food. It could be uh, pain. And that is why it could hurt so good. Uh, but... Uh, Another way that it could hurt so good is if it doesn't hurt as much as you expected it to hurt. This is pretty interesting. According to a 2013 study from the University of Oslo, a pain that hits less severely than expected, as in you didn't spank me nearly as hard as I thought you would, that can give us a rush of release or even something like pleasure. Which is kind of interesting, and I was thinking about it in the context of Adele. Okay, go and, on. And that's thanks to Noel, our producer, because <laughs> he had brought up that her song, Somebody Like You, mm-hmm. is a real, not in, in addition to it being a real tearjerker for people, that it has this thing that it's doing, and it's creating a sort of, I, I don't know if I would call it pain, but maybe metaphorical pain in the brain. Okay. In other words, it has this highly dissonant chord directly on that you lyric. So somebody like you, and she messes with that, with that you lyric. And the, the reason why this is problematic for the brain is because the brain likes a nice pattern. And up until then, there's been this pattern that it can follow along with. Mm-hmm. But just that one little change in that you lyric creates this frisson, this, this, this friction in the brain. And that's when you see the, um, the moment before dopamine is released in the brain, because as soon as that friction gets resolved within the next chord, mm-hmm. which then follows back into a pattern, the brain is almost like, oh, I, that didn't feel as bad as I thought it was going to. I was, and this is just in music and on the symbolic level. So that's why I bring it up, because when we're talking about perceptions of discomfort and pain, we're meeting them in different scenarios. In our life, even in songs. I think this is a great point, bringing up the, the pattern recognition, because uh, 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 from what I've, uh, I've read, a lot of these uh, BDSM situations, and we're, you know, we're talking about the, the lower end of the spectrum, not hanging from hooks, but you know, it's not a situation where someone says, all right, spank me eight times, and then someone spanks them eight times as hard as they can. There are going to be varying levels uh, of, of pain, varying levels of sensation, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes pleasurable and painful that are going on there. And the brain inevitably of the uh, the person uh, receiving this, these sensations, they're going to inevitably try to identify the patterns and find the patterns in this uh, this this chorus of pain and pleasure that they are receiving. Which kind of gets us into this next section, in which we talk about the community of pain, because you know obviously a person can do this, can engage in acts of pain unto themselves, but we see so many different scenarios, not just in historical contexts, in which people will engage in this kind of ritual as a sort of bonding experience. 
And in this, uh, we have to refer to um, an excellent article by anthropologist Dimitri Zygalatis, who we mentioned earlier, his uh, article, Trial by Fire, From Firewalking to the Ice Bucket Challenge, Ritual Pain and Suffering Forge Intense Social Bonds. And this was uh, published online in the excellent uh, Eon magazine. Um, according to Zygalatis, cognitive dissonance theory holds that when we uh, that when the cost or the effort spent in pursuing a goal is disproportionately higher than its reward, uh, this, uh, this, this, this dissonance that we feel, this, uh, this, this gap mm-hmm. between, uh, the cost and the, and the, and the product, uh, out of that, w- we end up with this, like, area of mental stress, right? We, no one wants to, to pay more for a product than it's worth. No one wants to suffer for something that's ultimately not worth suffering. So what do you do? Your mind just reorganizes everything and ends up uh, engaging in, in what they call effort justification. So, it's it's like if someone says, "Hey, that reward you got, you really had to go through hell to get it. Was it worth it? Of course, it was worth it because I I there's no way I did all of that for nothing. There's no way that that badge is not worth all the the effort I put into it." Yeah, a good example of this, uh, again brought to us by Dimitri Zikolatis, is quote in a classic psychology experiment conducted in 1959, the psychologist Elliot Aronson of Stanford and Judson Mills of the United States Army found that people who had to go through a highly embarrassing situation in order to join a discussion group subsequently reported liking the group more. In a follow-up study, researchers used electric shocks and found that those who received severe shocks before entering the group valued their membership more than those who received merely mild ones. Very interesting. And that... that instantly brings to mind various rites of passage that exist out there from physically painful rites of passage that involve uh, bodily modification Mm -hmm. to even, uh, uh, you know, some of the examples of hazing out there in in university settings. That's what I I was just thinking. This is ritual abuse, this Mm -hmm. practice. And, And fraternities have what they call hell week, right? That's when you are indoctrinated into this group. And we're talking about sexual abuse. In, in some cases, we're talking about the forced consumption of mind-altering drugs and alcohol, enduring feats of strength and pain, like boiling hot water on the back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, drinking pitchers of water until your brain swells. So here you see a very communal aspect, and, and particularly in, through the lens of fraternity, you see how it becomes that much more important that you gain that membership because... Yeah. You put your body and mind on the line. You know, and there are perhaps softer examples of this too. When you see, uh, see like corporate retreats, people go on, go out on this retreat. They go through certain experiences that are probably not all that painful, but it's the, the community aspect of it. It's the, the, the price that you're paying, uh, for it. Um, those non-trust falls yes, hurt non-trust falls. a lot. Um, you know, also arguably, uh, boot camp in a military uh, situation. Yeah. You know, you're going through what is by all accounts, uh, you know, a physically and emotionally demanding time, but in, you're supposed to emerge from that at the other end as a more cohesive group. Well, I think that's why those types of exercise classes are so popular. Yeah. In a sense, because you do get that, that kind of bonding. And nobody's going to, at the end of the day, say, well, they really kind of beat the hell out of you in that boot camp uh, class that you took at the park. Was it really worth it? Do you feel better? Of course I feel better because there's no way that I got up early to suffer like that for a month yeah. uh, if, if I don't feel great now. And look at these guns. Yes. Now, another item that uh, Psychologist uh, brings up is the idea of collective 
effervescence. And this comes to us from French sociologist Emile Durkheim, who argued in Elementary Forms of Religious Life, that's a 1912 uh, publication, that uh, the collective performance of ritual generates a kind of electricity. So this is, you know, this this shock, this this ecstatic state of shared excitement uh, that uh, just kind of moves uh, through a group of people that are engaged in a ritual or even in a, I mean, any kind of ritualistic endeavor. So this could be uh, a bunch of people singing a hymn at the local church, this could be uh, people engaging uh, in, a, in, a, in the burning of an effigy at, uh, at a Burning Man type event, or even engaging in icebreakers at that corporate retreat. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's about cooperation. And we've mm-hmm. talked about how this is like one of the, the, the cornerstones of humanity that's allowed us to be so successful as a species, this idea that we're going to we're going to sign on this uh, dotted line of the social contract and say, yes, we'll cooperate. When we get into a gym together, we will all stomp our feet together and we will cheer for the team and we will engage in this as a group and we'll get together as a group. Yeah, we're going to align our emotional states. And no matter what our differences are, we can agree on maybe at least one thing. That Jesus guy is pretty good. That that Muhammad guy is pretty good. That, Jesus is just all you know, right. The, the idea being that within any kind of a, a community that is engaged in some sort of ritualistic endeavor, you're going to see emotional states align. You're going, there's going to be this core, this uh, this center of the wheel that uh, that everyone is uh, attuned to. Now, you might be thinking, okay, fine, I get it. People get together, they do things, they sync up. But it seems a little like hooey that the pain could be such a ritualized collective event that people would willingly submit themselves to this. And we have a little study that might underscore the fact that, yes, people will do this. Yeah, and this one, uh, this was actually one that Zygalates, uh, uh, conducted himself, uh, carrying out, uh, at a, um, uh, during, uh, Taipusum, uh, which is, a we mentioned earlier, of course, uh, and of course, it's directly related to, uh, Kavadi, those, uh, burdens that people take on themselves. This was the festival, not the vegetarian festival, no. but the other one. Right. He said, they, he found that those who had participated in the extreme rituals, uh, again, the extreme uh, Kavadis, uh, gave twice as much as those who had taken part in collective pair. He found that the same high levels of generosity among those who had themselves gone through the painful activities of the of the Kavadi and those who had merely followed the procession without engaging in any of this uh, bodily mortification. Just as expected, the painful ritual boosted pro-social behavior in the participants. And then in terms of having that stake in the process, right, or stake in your right. body, maybe... There's something called the martyrdom effect. And uh, in 2011, the psychologist Christopher Olivola of the University of Warwick and Elder Shafir of Princeton demonstrated what is known as this martyrdom effect. And what they had is they had a series of experiments in which they asked participants to raise money for various charities and found that people donated more when they expected to suffer more. Hmm. For example, running five miles versus just attending a lovely picnic. Or... How about dumping a bucket of cold water on their head, right? That sounds odd. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, who would do that? Who would do that? Well, yeah, a lot of people, apparently, because uh, uh, the uh, the ALS Association, of course, raised $95 million. Uh, last $95 county. Million? Yes, to help fight uh, ALS. And I, I assume everyone is familiar with this at this point. But if you're not, if somehow you missed out on the social media explosion that was the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, it was individuals dumping or having a, a, a bucket of chilling ice water or, or ice 
dumped on their head, and then they challenge other people. And if you're honoring the the whole idea of it, you're supposed to then go make a donation to the ALS uh, ALS Association, be it uh, instead of taking dumping ice on your head or uh, as part of dumping ice on your head. What's interesting about that is that I don't think that anybody ever intended this, but every single one of those videos is a kind of data point in this pain pleasure um, experiment, right? Right. Of humanity, in which you do see people emerge on the other side giddy. Giddy and, and evidently more, uh, likely to donate. Either if you're, and that goes for people that are partaking in the ritual and presumably those who are who are actually just, uh, you know, on the other end of a computer watching some celebrity dumped, dump ice on their head. And key to this, perhaps, this is this idea that you are the participant, you are the, the hero in this story. So storytelling really factors into this. And when we get back, we're going to delve into it. All right, we are back. And one of the reasons why I think that Ice Bucket Challenge is is really so successful is it is storytelling at its finest and quickest. And it's this cultural meme that has been passed around. And it's this thing that everybody can gather around and say, yeah, I experienced that. I didn't experience it with that person in Arkansas, but I, you know, directly. But we, we both had the same sort of thing, uh, that ice cold moment and that rush of pleasure in experiencing it. So, for instance, you might never know exactly what it's like to be David Lynch, but David Lynch has experienced the Ice Bucket Challenge. David Lynch knows what it's like yes. to ritually have that the ice raised above his head and then dumped upon him, and you can experience that, too, and be a part of the same story. David Lynch and Pamela Anderson have something in common, <laughs> is what I'm saying. It's pretty great. I, 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 It's just amazing how much depth there is to something that at 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 surface level, just seems like people doing a silly thing for a good cause. Now, in uh, when I was looking this up right before we did the podcast, I was just going in to see what the latest stats were about how much money was raised mm-hmm. for the cause. I found some stories about the new ice bucket challenge, or something that is that is brought up as possibly the new ice bucket challenge, and that is the hashtag wake up call that is uh, being uh, that's being rolled out by UNICEF, mm-hmm. raise money for UNICEF. So again, for a good cause. But the idea here is that. People, especially celebrities, end up sharing pictures of themselves when they first wake up in the morning, which on the surface here sounds very out of keeping with uh, with everything that makes the Ice Bucket Challenge work, right? Because there's nothing painful about it. I guess the idea is that it could be humiliating or or, yeah. or humanizing, maybe, that it's knocking you down a peg, and so you're you're suffering at the very... Uh, shallow end of the suffering pool. Especially if you're Naomi Campbell and you have this picture of yourself just waking up. looks like a magazine cover. With your hair just perfectly spread over the pillow and this sort of morning dew settled upon your your face. Um, It was disgusting. I was (laughs) like, I I was, now I feel like there's a a morning Naomi Campbell phobia. (laughs) It was terrible. I can't believe she did it. It will, it will be interesting to watch it and see how this particular hashtag, this particular fundraising social media cause. Don't, don't look at her. She looks like the sea hag in the little mermaid, the, the original. Um, I, I'm making fun because of course she looked like a supermodel waking up. But yeah, I mean, there's this idea that, you know, she might be humiliating herself and submitting herself to this collective ritual. 
And the ritual is important. Uh, and it is worth, again, stressing that in all these religious rituals and some of the secular ones, one is reenacting or engaging in a story of pain. And they're, they're making the story true through pain. I mean, their pain becomes a testament to its reality. Mm-hmm. You know, in thinking about this, I come back to, um, to again, that central Christian image of Jesus on the cross. And uh, I ran across something interesting recently, and I, I blogged about this on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, so maybe some of you uh, saw it. But if you look back to uh, the earlier tradition, the earlier artistic tradition of, uh, of, of representing uh, Jesus on the cross, you'd see stuff like... Uh, uh, Alberto uh, uh, Soto's 1187 Christus Triumphus, which uh, shows you this uh, uh, this this Christ on the cross with this serene kind of doughy look in his eyes, mm-hmm. like this is this does not look like a man who is suffering. This looks like a man who is above pain. This looks like a God that is above human suffering. That, that's the opioids. Yeah, I guess. But this was actually the predominant style prior to the 13th century. Uh, after which it becomes increasingly proper to depict Christ as not only undergoing physical pain, but suffering physical pain like you and me. And you see one of the more just fantastic examples of this tradition in um, the Christ of Matthias Grunewald's Eisenham altarpiece. Uh, and in this one, we see a God that is not only suffering, but appears to be diseased. Uh, and then I go into the details for that in the, in the blog post. I'll include a link uh, on this podcast episode. But you see a, a vision of Christ that is intensely suffering, diseased even, mm-hmm. uh, and in, in, but but in all of it is engaging in the kind of physical suffering that humans can relate to. Because you know, imagine yourself. You're in this. Uh, you know, you're 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 poor. You're in a, a medieval town. There's uh, there's black death knocking on the door. Uh, there's there's warfare raging. Which which image can you relate to? Which image can you connect with and engage in the story? And that, of course, would be the the Christ that is suffering, the Christ that actually feels pain like you feel pain. Well, I would uh, wager to bet that every single story that's ever been written, there is an element of suffering yes. within it, because that is you cannot have a story without suffering. That is the human experience. Yeah, yeah life is suffering, and uh, and nobody wants to see a movie or read a book about an individual who has all their dreams come true. That is not a story. That is just a, that's just a, a pipe dream. We want to see characters who are challenged, characters who yeah. suffer, characters. I mean, it, it's ultimately more about what people try to do than what they actually s- succeed in doing. Even yoga Gabba narratives have <laughs> suffering in them. It's true. Somebody gets bit. You're not supposed to do that. Not yeah. be your friends. Gobel is not the one who's always sad and Gobel suffering. is always suffering. Occasionally they cheer him up, but then he returns to being this... Uh, epitome of uh of, of childhood suffering yeah. and maybe gobel decides to take up ritualistic pain um in order to try to to uh fill himself with a sense of control over his destiny that's right i mean there's this this whole idea of uh of control versus chaos which reminds us of the episode that we did on flow state uh particularly where particularly if you're playing a game right mm-hmm. you're engaging in some sort of a uh, limited version of reality in which there are set rules and you can actually take full command of the situation. The, it's it's challenging enough to engage you, but not too challenging, not so much that you're frustrated. And so you can see uh, ex- cases where uh, ritual allows us to partake in this and engage in a flow state. Well, and I would see this particularly in BDSM, right? Mm-hmm. Because in that sense, you're creating this sort of uh, pushing your outer limits, 
within something that's not going to necessarily break you. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there are rules, there are limits, and it's about maybe edging towards those limits but not surpassing them. Uh, that's why it's you know a a, a BDSM dungeon is not an actual uh, you know stereotypical medieval dungeon where people are tortured. It's a it's a consensual exploration of the senses, if you will. Rickshaw. A rickshaw, like a rickshaw cart. No, that was my um, safe word. Oh, okay. I was just. In- <laughs> That's totally going to get cut out, right? No, I mean, I, I kind of, I would made me try to picture a rickshaw cart environment within a BDSM club. Like, there's so many things that are a thing, it would not surprise me. <laughs> All right, let's talk about how this might translate to altered states. Indeed, because this is the motif, right? You have someone engaging in sort of ritualistic uh, pain, especially within a, a religious scenario, and. They are achieving some sort of enlightenment, uh, some sort of uh, uh, transcendence, or you know, at, at least they're 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 bringing themselves to tears, not out of pain, but out of relief, out of out of forgiveness. Even. Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about acts of self-flagellation, right? And yes. you know, you you see it, you understand the the metaphor behind it. But what sort of why would there be a kind of transcendence here? And it, it turns out that. Um, What's happening in the brain really translates to a meditative experience. Yeah. As, uh, as far as forgiveness through pain goes, there's a fantastic uh, 2011 study. Uh, this was uh, conducted by psychological scientist Brock Bastian, who just has a fabulous name, I, w- I want to say, sure. uh, from the University of Queensland, Australia. And uh, he set out to explore this idea. Why, why would striking yourself with a lash make you feel better about your, your transgressions? Uh, so Bastion's team recruited young male and female test subjects under the guise of a mental and physical acuity study. The researchers asked the test subjects to write a personal essay about a time in which they ostracized someone. And the aim here was to make uh, this por- these uh, participants in the study uh, feel guilty or immoral. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the control group just wrote personal essays about, you know, whatever, some sort of routine memory that wasn't going to make them feel guilty. The researchers then instructed both immoral volunteers and the controls to hold their hands in a bucket of ice water for as long as they could stand it. Others dipped their hand in a soothing bucket of warm water. Uh, so the question here that the study was posing, would immoral test subjects punish themselves with longer dips in the water, uh, in the cold water, rather, uh, and would they feel better afterwards? And the answer is yes on both counts. Uh, those who were primed to feel shame, again, by those personal mm-hmm. essays of ostracizing others, um, when they dipped their, their hands in the cold water, they held it for longer durations, and afterwards they described the dip as more painful and expressed reduced feelings of guilt afterwards. So Bastion's argument, and ultimately the argument of the study here, uh, is that uh, is that this illustrates our culturally altered understanding of pain. We've come to process it not only as negative environmental feedback, but also as justice and punishment. So on a psychological level, a little bit of a self-inflicted pain rebalances the scales that we've managed to unbalance uh, in our lives. Well, and I think that's interesting because that's where someone is able to achieve some sort of quiescence, right? Some sort of tranquility, even mm-hmm. if it's just fleeting. And we've talked about this before in context of meditation or yoga, is that there's this part of the brain called the default mode network. And it's the midline chatter that you hear in your head that's very involved with me, 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 right? Yeah. And in order to dim the lights on that, 
you've got to engage in something like meditation or something that takes you outside of yourself, which is where something like BDSM comes into, because that involves something called the dorsolateral network, which is very closely intertwined with this default mode network. Yeah, the uh, this part of the brain is is involved in distinguishing self from other, uh, and is also involved in uh, in out of body experiences. A 2014 study from Northern Illinois University uh, linked sadomasochism to altered states of mind, uh, in keeping with those achieved through yoga or meditation. The researchers administered cognitive tests to S and M participants following a switching scene, and based on the findings, they suspect that pain alters blood flow in the brain, particularly to that. Uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which, again, plays this essential role in our ability to distinguish self from others. So, in other words, intense pain in this control setting may result in a feeling of oneness with humanity or even the universe, uh, which, again, brings the, to mind uh, the, those, these uh, hook suspension uh, ceremonies in which one is is elevated, which one where one is rising up, um, you know, with help from the, the, the hooks, um, I was uh, I was looking around for for feedback from um, suspension uh, participants on this, and I found a quote from Alan Faulkner, who's uh, the founder of TSD, the the first suspension group, and often held up as the father of modern suspension. He said, "If life had a dial to adjust the volume, suspension has a way of accessing this invisible knob and turning it down," which is which at, at first may seem paradoxical, right? Because mm-hmm. you're thinking, what could be a more intense experience of life? Been hanging from a hook, right? You think, oh, well, these people are just adrenaline junkies. They just want to just go in there and ah, and hang from a hook. But here's this guy talking about how hanging from these hooks, uh, suspended above the ground, was a way of of turning everything down, of 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 actually making the rest of of his life sort of fade into the background. Well, this calls back to the Mandan tribe that we were talking about mm-hmm. that also practiced uh, suspension. And the idea was that not only was it just the celebration and this um, this sort of ritual and looking at how Earth was created, um, but it was this way of those participants to not only test their metal, but clear their minds in order for visions to come to them for a sort of... Um, a kind of grace to settle upon their brains. So there you have it, the zen of pain, or at least our exploration of this idea of pain and pleasure mixing together, of of pain uh, in a controlled environment leading to uh, to to some level of, of uh, transcendence. Uh, it's a it's a powerful topic, and again, one you see shadows off throughout human culture, throughout religious traditions and secular traditions as well. And again, we want to uh, underline. Uh, don't go out and hurt yourself because you listen to this podcast. Uh, you know, we're not advocating uh, self-harm in any way, shape, or form. But, uh, again, it's something we just see throughout human culture. Yeah, this is not a celebration of pain. This is just an exploration of the tropes that we continue to see in society. And, and it's a fascinating topic. And uh, we certainly do not want to uh, scoot anything like, say, chronic pain or self-inflicted pain to the side here. Those are very important topics, and they deserve uh, their own time. But, again, this is just looking at uh, at pain in a different way. Indeed, and if you want to listen to uh, a discussion that goes more into the subject of chronic pain, uh, do check out, out our past episode, uh, The Future of Pain. You'll find that in other past episodes of the podcast at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, our videos, blog posts as well. 
And if you have any thoughts on this, if you have other examples that we missed of this sort of like ritual pain that, that we sometimes submit ourselves to, please send us your thoughts via email and you can send them to blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 